Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, let's give our attention tonight to the reading of God's word. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Hey, look, y'all, if you're just joining us, we're trying this semester uh, to see if the fundamental truths, the fundamental doctrines of Christianity can sort of shake us out of our commonplace view of it. Uh, We've tried to suggest that at Ole Miss, we're just kind of over Christianity. We've left it behind. Well, you know, what occurs to me is there's really nothing like a good insult to kind of break up the action in your day or to break up the boredom with your day. Have you ever thought about this? I want you to imagine, ladies, that you're sitting around uh, perhaps your sorority table tomorrow and you're approached by the president of your sorority who looks at you and says, you know what, you would have the cutest face if your nose wasn't so big. Or perhaps, you know, tomorrow, gentlemen, you're sitting in class and the professor comes and hands your paper back to you uh, with sort of a decent grade on it. And he leans down and kind of whispers in your ear. He says, look, I want you to know, uh, I didn't grade you very hard on this since I know that you're sort of so far behind the other folks in the class. Now, look, I don't know how you would react to those things, but I dare say that you would have a hard time uh, forgetting that. Those kind of comments will stay with you, won't they? Well, look, there are a few places in the Bible where the fundamental problem of of humanity in sin is laid out more vividly and, for this reason, more insultingly than what we've just read. You know, it's hard to hear these kind of things coming from the mouth of the Apostle Paul. But at the same time, you have a little bit of understanding with him because it's not like he's just blaming you because he's lumped himself in with the rest of us. Notice what it says at the opening passage. It says, are we any better? We Jews any better? And he says, not at all. We're no better than the rest of those religious bigots that we talked about in chapter 2. We're no better than those um, um, sort of idolatrous pagans that we talked about at the end of chapter 1. We're no better. Now look, I don't know what you know about Paul, but that's a very bizarre statement coming from a former Jewish rabbi. (laughs) They weren't very naturally inclined to offer up that kind of humility. How do you account for that, right? Look, I want you to imagine that you are having Christmas dinner this year with your racist grandfather. And at one point during the conversation, he leans over to you and says, you know what, for years I have looked down on people. Quite honestly, I can see honestly that I'm no better than those people. You would sit there and think to yourself, okay, something radical happened in the life of my grandfather to make him change his views that quickly, right? Look, y'all, I want to suggest to you that if you allow 
what theologians call the doctrine of total depravity. To get on the inside of your thinking, that's the way this radical change happens. In other words, far from being sort of the big, dark, terrible, you know, guilt-inducing passages that we've had to look at up until this time, I want to suggest to you that looking at this passage is the beginning to an opening of a gateway that we will really dive into next week at 6 o'clock, by the way. (laughs) So stick with me on this. I simply want to give you five short thoughts to unpack what this doctrine of total depravity is about. Five things. Number one, Paul says the first thing that's wrong with us is we have a negative standing. Look at verse 9. Paul basically says that every class of person, whether you're Jewish, whether you're Greek, whether you're religious or irreligious, are, and here's the phrase, and it's worth underlining in your Bibles because it's kind of a big one, are under sin. Now that's kind of a weird phrase. What does Paul mean when he says under sin? Well, I would actually go out of my way to say that this is very foundational to Paul's argument. It's a huge concept. Because Paul is not talking about you committing individual sins. That's not what he's saying about being under sin. What he's talking about is the way in which the universe views you. Let me see if I can illustrate that. Many of you travel for school and you go abroad to various different countries. And, you know, when you get off the plane at these countries of origin, uh, you have to go through what they call customs. And what you typically do is you kind of walk through these lanes until you get to the customs official, right? A little checkpoint there. But one of the things that you don't get as far as questions from that customs officials is something like this. They don't usually look at you and say, well, now, you know, tell me about your childhood. You know, when you were a young person, were you obedient to your parents during all that time? You know, how about the time in which you were in school? Did you make good choices? Like, did you keep good company or did you hang out with those troublemakers? No customs official wants to know that kind of stuff about you. What do they want to know? They want to see that passport. In other words, the only thing that matters to them at that point is what your country of origin is. That is the singular fact that will determine whether you're welcome in that country or not, right? You know, our own customs officials uh, uh, in America have been struggling a lot with what they call, um, with what to do when someone comes from a country of suspicion, right? Right? Uh, What do you do with that person when they try to enter U.S. territory because of the fear of terrorism? Well, look, Paul is opening up by saying, look, set aside for a second all of your addictions, all of your failures, all of your faults, and simply realize that when you go through God's checkpoint, you're not just from a country of suspicion, you're from a country of guilt. And I don't know about you, but I'm kind of insulted by that thought. But it's the first plank in Paul's description of total depravity. We have a negative standing, okay? Secondly, though, he goes on to say that we have faulty reasoning. This is a huge one. When he goes on in verse 11, he says, No one understands, no one seeks God. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that the effect of sin, the effect of all of the factors that he's talked about in the first two chapters on you, is to make you unable to even think properly about your life and the world around you. Uh, The theologians refer to this as what they call the noetic effects of sin. Noetic simply meaning how it's affected your mind. Look, and the reason why I mention this is because I, I, I get a chance to talk to a lot of you day in and day out on campus. And for a lot of you that are coming to RUF on a regular basis, 
you're, you're simply looking at Christianity in, in sort of a, in terms of an evaluation. For a lot of you, Christianity is something that you're only still considering. And it remains something that you're not certain enough as to whether or not you're going to be a part of it, right? Well, look, I want you in particular, for those of you that find yourself curious and even skeptical tonight, to hear what Paul is saying. Because he's saying, is it not possible that a lot of your problems with Christianity are not due to the message that's being sent, but are rather due to, here we go, internal biases that are coloring the way in which you look at things that are not allowing them to even be plausible to you? Think about that for just a second. Look, if you, if, I don't know how many of you have ever taken a, a communications class. When I, when I was in college, I was a communications major. I uh, wish I could look, at this, look on my father's face when I made, his, made my father proud when his son was a communications major. Exactly what can you do with that, Les? I don't know, Pop, but uh, that's what I am. But one of the things that we talk about in communications theory is this fact that human beings have this way of creating, uh, by our expectations and our thoughts, what we call sort of a field of plausibility. That is, there's a realm of things that your uh, predispositions will allow you to think about as even being possible. Okay? Um, In other words, what these things do is they determine what you will and will not see even when someone's reasoning with you. Let me give an example. I wonder how many of you have ever talked to someone who is really genuinely struggling with depression. Maybe that depression comes through some kind of chemical imbalance, something that they can't necessarily help, whatever. Um, Have you ever tried to go to someone like that and look at them and say, you know what, you really ought not feel this way. You know, you're intelligent, attractive, people love you, you're outgoing, etc. You need to get over it. You ever had that kind of conversation with someone who's depressed? After a while, you begin to notice, you're like, you know, this is not getting in. This person is taking my encouragement, listen, and filtering it through their own grid so that my encouragement is not plausible to them. Does that make sense? Look, Paul is saying that we're all doing the exact same thing with God. Because the bottom line is, is Christianity is coming to us with us having presented to it a, a list of biases that to explain everything away. And try to deny its existence. Now look, we could talk about this for a very long time. There's a whole lot of effects of this one point. But I simply want to offer you this. Especially tonight if you're wrestling with skepticism. Christianity is going to come into your life and it's going to be unlike anything that you've ever been taught. That's what it means. And it means that you're going to have to listen very carefully to what Paul is laying out in this book. And what I'm saying. Because if what Paul is saying is right... The message of Christianity is not going to be on your mental map. Does that make sense? It's not going to be something that you look at and go, oh, of course, unless something else happens. In other words, whatever, whatever Christianity comes to you as, it has got to be a category buster. Or else what Paul is saying about our natural predilection is not true. So secondly, there's this problem uh, with our faulty reasoning. Thirdly, Paul then goes on to say that we also wrestle with bad motives. Look at what he says. He says, when no one seeks God, there's a lot of people who look up and say, that's insulting too, Paul, because the truth of the matter is, I am seeking God. I'm here to Bible study, looking for God. I want to see him. I want to experience him. But Paul is being being very specific here, if you take him as a whole in his whole argument in Romans. Because what he's saying is, is seeking something from God 
is not the same thing as seeking God. Note the difference. In other words, Paul does not say there is no one who seeks spirituality. He doesn't say there is no one who seeks God for an answer to their prayers. He doesn't say there's no one who seeks God for personal peace and happiness. People are oftentimes looking for those things. But Paul is saying that whenever someone seeks God, they're doing so for their own self-interest. They're doing it simply because there's something that in the end is in it for them. And Paul is saying that no one cares to seek God on his own terms. For no other reason than the fact that we owe him that allegiance. That if God is the creator of all and we're his creature, we owe him that allegiance. And we seek him because he is the only one who deserves that seeking. Paul looks and says, nobody does that. There's no one that does that. In order for that to happen to you, it's got to be something that the Holy Spirit changes in you to do it. There's an old pastor who, used to, who preached in um, uh, British Isles, Wales or so, uh, in the 20th century named Martin Lloyd-Jones. You remember this guy's name. Because Dr. Jones basically points out the fact in one of his sermons uh, on, this, on this very passage that what this means practically is, is that just because you're praying doesn't mean that you're looking for God. But seeking something, um, but, but just because we're crying doesn't mean that we're necessarily crying out for God. You know, just because we're reading our Bibles doesn't mean that we're seeking God. In other words, this is a completely unique way in which I would argue most people see Christianity and it's, uh, um, having grown up in it. It's absolutely unique what he's saying. No one comes to serve God completely for God's sake. Something has to happen into you. By the way, this is why Paul says that there's no one who does good. You know, if you read some of the popular atheists these days, like Christopher Hitchens, I heard him in one place in an article say, look, Christians always say that no one does good. Well, that's absurd. Atheists do all kinds of good things. But now hold on for just a second. What Christopher Hitchens doesn't realize is that when Paul is using the word good, he's saying good that would be offered up and done for God's glory alone because he deserves it. Of course, there are things that we would refer to maybe as common good, or if you will, little g, good things that are maybe good for society, good for whatever. Absolutely. But in Paul's book, he says, ultimately, when it all comes down to it, they're done in self-interest. And if they're done in self-interest, it can't be called good because it wasn't done good for God. <laughs> Look, it's insulting to hear him say this. He sweeps all of it away and says, you all have bad motives. Bad motives. Number four. Total depravity, number four, means that there is therefore spoiled output. Spoiled output. <laughs> but wait, there's more. You know, if you look at verses 13 and 14, you really start to realize that Paul seems to be very preoccupied with the human tongue. Paul, obviously something of a preacher teacher, he spent a lot of times talking. And as he began to think about his problem and sin, he started thinking about the stuff that comes out of his mouth. But look, I want you to see that I think Paul is actually talking about a whole lot more than just, um, I don't know, like foul language or maybe um, the very discouraging things that we oftentimes say to each other. Although, quite honestly, that would almost be enough to continue his case quite easily. I think he's talking about something much more fundamental. In other words, Paul, I think, is saying that when you look at the rest of the New Testament, the mouth or the tongue is the monitor of the condition of the human heart. Did you catch that? That's a big one. The mouth 
Your tongue, what you say, is a monitor of your heart. A monitor. What does a monitor do? Some of you have in your dorm rooms, you've got a computer monitor. What does that thing do? Well, the monitor basically gives you a glimpse of what's inside your computer. All of the things, it gives you a glimpse as to what the computer is really made of, of its, of its true nature, if you will, its capacity. Well, if you look in places like Luke chapter 6, you see Jesus teaching in this way. He says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil for, here it comes, listen, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Did you catch that? Paul is making a statement, not necessarily only about the words that come out of your mouth, but about the condition of your heart. Now, we just entered into a great big old can of worms, so bear with me. I tried to save enough time for this. I am on a campaign <laughs> for at least there to be one generation of people who come up out of the University of Mississippi who have a different understanding of what that word heart means than what we're typically taught that it means. For most people, we think that our heart means our feelings. I feel it in my heart. It's my feelings things. But the Bible actually has a much more fundamental view of the human heart. And the, the best example of it comes to us in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, where the Proverbs writer says this. He says, but look, keep your heart with all vigilance. In other words, above all else, make sure that you're careful about where your heart is. For, here it comes, from it, that is your heart, flow the springs of life. Everything that comes out of your life, your thinking, your, your, your mental capacity, comes from your heart. Your feelings, your emotions, they come out of your heart. Your choices, uh, what, you, what you might call your volitional capacity, guess where that comes from? You got it, the heart. The heart is the center of your being. And for that reason, it's the controlling mechanism of your character. Who you are is determined by your heart. Now, I know what you're asking. You're going, okay, I've never heard that before. Well, so, so kind of what is my heart then? I mean, if all this stuff is coming out of it, how do I know what my heart is and where it is? It's a good question. Look, y'all, the heart is simply the place where your soul entertains its fascinations. The heart is the location of your allegiances, the things that you have sworn loyalty to. It's the location of your commitments, the things that you have bought into as being the thing that defines you. Your heart is the location of your infatuations, the things that dazzle your eyes. The heart is the location of the places where you go to console yourself when you're feeling down. The heart is the location of your desires. It's the location of your longings. In other words, the heart is so much more than emotions. It's the place where everything that you are channels from the things that define you into your actions, whether it be your thoughts, your emotions, or your deeds. Does that make sense? Ergo, in other words, it's a big deal. Your heart is the center of who you are. It's what makes you who you are. And if you're wondering right now, you say, well, oh, my goodness, how do I know what's in my heart? Paul looks and says, look at the monitor. If you want to know what's in the computer, check the monitor. If you want to know what's in your heart, check the monitor. You know what it is? It's your tongue. It's your mouth. Now, look, y'all, 
I recognize for many of us, you're thinking to yourself, ha ha, yes, it's for all those loudmouth people, right? These are people whose mouth is full of potty talk. Uh, they, uh, they don't have any nice things to say about people because they're constantly cutting people down. Okay, yes, yes, that's what, that's what Paul is talking about. Clearly, when there's things that come out of my mouth that are foul, I need to look at those and examine those and say, does that say something about the foulness of my heart? But be very careful, those of you that condescend to the loud people. You do realize that shyness can be just as much a way of dealing with your heart as a loud person. Uh, Look, you know, the quiet mouth can conceal a whole lot of fear on the inside. In the same way that sometimes the most confident of people who talk all the time can hide a whole lot of insecurity. Look, y'all, Paul is simply saying that for us, we have locked our lives onto something with this mechanism, this functioning thing inside of your soul that locks onto stuff and says, this is what makes me me. The Bible calls it your heart. And guess what? Your mouth is going to reflect that. Bad output, Paul says, is the fourth aspect of this whole total depravity thing. Fifthly and finally, and I'll finish with this. Paul says the last thing that, that, that you have as a problem is that there is no fearing. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Look, y'all, I'm stealing this whole last point from, surprise, surprise, my favorite preacher, Tim Keller, um, where he makes this in what I think is a brilliant point. Because we look at that little phrase, the fear of the Lord. Hmm. There is no fear of the Lord to be. We think to ourselves, what is fear? Because it sounds a little bit like God is saying, that we're supposed to be scared of the Lord. But there's a, there's a bunch of verses in the Old Testament that talk about the fear of the Lord that make it to where that can't be the definition of fear. Okay, let me give you a couple of examples. First of all, Psalm 119 verse 38 says this. The psalmist says, Confirm your promise to your servant that you may be feared. Did you hear that? Confirm your promise to me, O God. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a good thing. Why would I fear the Lord if he was confirming his promise for me? That is sort of helping me to see and understand and really own his promises. That doesn't sound like I'm scared of him. You're exactly right. Look, think of another one. Psalm, Psalm 130 verse 4 says, But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. You see how that sounds a little bit strange? How can, how can fear mean being scared of if it's attached to forgiveness in the psalmist's mind. Did you catch that? In other words, these sound like good things. Why would they cause us to be scared of God? Because when it says the fear of the Lord, it's not talking about being scared of God. Well, what is it talking about? Look, y'all, the fear of the Lord, whatever it is, is increased when you see God's salvation, when you own his promises, when you understand his wonder and his love, when you grasp his forgiveness, In other words, the fear of God is that thing that comes and knocks you on the ground because it comes to you and says, look, (laughs) you are more sinful and more wretched and more depraved than you could possibly imagine. And I know that sounds like terrible news, but you are more loved and accepted and forgiven if you are in Christ than you could ever dare dream. And both of those things are true, get this, at the same time. That's the fundamental definition of a Christian who has come to see the depth of his own depravity, like we're looking at tonight, but has joined that with a God who actually loves people who will own up to that very fact. 
And somewhere in the combination, there's an overwhelming awe that wells up in the soul that looks to God brand new with a sense of appreciation and joy and trembling and, and, and respect and determination for obedience. And God says, it's the fear of the Lord. Now you're fearing the Lord. And Paul says the big problem is that nobody has that. No one has that. But I'm telling you, once you get it, you know. Because the reason is because God has affirmed you to the sky, but his judgment has humbled you to the dust. And that's why it's called fear. Because you're too humble to be self-centered. But you're too affirmed to need to be affirmed. Look, and you want to know how you can know whether or not the fear of the Lord has gotten you? I love this. This is what I found so brilliant about what Keller was saying. Because when the law is working, look at verse 19. This is worth kind of looking at. You can tell when the law is working because there it says, so that every mouth may be stopped. Okay, underline that in your Bibles. That's a big one, okay? Let me tell you why. You know, Keller says that you know that you've met the fear of the Lord when you shut up. Now look, in my house growing up, for my kids, they're not here tonight, they're all sick, along with their mommies. Mommy, mommies. <laughs> I swear that wasn't a Freudian slip. Where are we in the, in the podcast tonight so I can edit that from the thing? My children are home with their one mother. <clears throat> Man, this was the good point, too. I was at the good one. Look. We don't say shut up around our house. It's an ugly thing to say around our house. But here's the funny thing. Paul says it's not an ugly thing. He says the gospel comes along and has this way. The fear of the Lord is trying to get inside of you and make you shut up. That's what it's doing. And you'll know that you've grasped the fear of the Lord when that's what happens. Oh, we think to ourselves after RUF, you know what? I can do it. Man, I can turn it around this time. Lord, I'll do better. I promise you this, this semester is going to be different. It's going to be different. Paul Lickson goes, shut up. Shut up. For others of us, we come up, we're like, oh. You know, I listen to this guy week in and week out, but he, do, he doesn't know where I've been. He doesn't know what I've done. Paul says, shut up. <laughs> shut up. What total depravity. And I know it sounds so awful. Total depravity. You know, this terrible, you know, awful sort of idea what it's trying to do is to get you to where I think you want to be. You know what that is? It's to shut up. <laughs> Stop offering to God the excuses. Stop offering to God the, thing that, the promise that you'll do better because you won't. You haven't. Stop promising that maybe this time it'll be different when I purpose myself with a little more willpower. Shut up. Stop trying to look and say, it's been too bad. He doesn't know where I've been. I've been back too many times. How many times have I repented? There's no way he's taking me back this time. Shut up. <laughs> look, y'all, there's an old preacher back in the um, First Great Awakening, uh, mid-1700s of American uh, Christian, Christian history, who in a lot of his sermons would say this. He would say, you know, for a lot of people, one of the reasons why Christianity hasn't like, built peace into your heart is because you've only repented of your sins. He said lots of people repent of their sins. Pharisees repent of their sins, and the Pharisees were not Christians. He said a Christian is someone who's not only repented of the stuff that they've done wrong, but they've also repented of the things that they actually thought they were doing right. 
My friends, you're not a Christian until you've, only, until you've repented of your sins and repented of your righteousness. That's what Paul is saying. In the end, when the fear of God comes on you and total depravity knocks you down, it's going to look at you and say, shut up. And allow yourself to look at God in a way in which you perhaps never have. Not with a big collection of empty promises. We've done that, (laughs) y'all. It didn't work, did it? And you don't have any peace because of it. And and not with a whole bunch of avoidance. Saying, ah, la, 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 la. Honestly, I can keep busy enough here. I can pile myself into a bajillion studies. I can lock myself in a bar every other night of the week. And I can keep him on the outside to where he doesn't allow himself to get in. That's noisy. (laughs) That's noisy inside your conscience, isn't it? Total depravity comes along and says, shut up. (laughs) Shut up and come and find a God who actually offers us salvation to those that do. Look, what if total depravity, the worst news you could ever hear, was at the very same time the best news that you could hear? Oh, and we're going to dive into this next week. That when we find out next week that God actually opens a door to those very self-same people who have shut up and looked to God and said, do with me what you will. And suddenly we open up a door of grace. Consider that an invitation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you then by your grace shut every mouth, (laughs) shut all of our mouths. What a noise we have made with our consciences with our moral efforts, with our excuses, with our avoidance. And there's no fear in us. Lord, when we search our hearts, we realize that our thoughts are bad. We don't think right. We realize that our tongues are bad because they show bad hearts. We realize that our motives are bad. So many things that we put ourselves on a treadmill for to try and do better all for nothing. Lord Jesus, I want to ask for my friend here in this room tonight who has been feeling that very peculiarly recently. Lord Jesus, would you bring that person to the end of themselves to finally come to you not for help, but for salvation. And that maybe they might look at all the things that they thought they were doing right and even despair of those and drop into the arms of your grace. Oh Lord Jesus, would you be near us in that way? If it's all really true what Paul has said, would you draw us to yourself in that sense so that as we sing to you, it might be something that you delight in. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.